Lord, tonight with you. Let's pray. We're going to go to Numbers 22. Father, we thank you for the everlasting love of God. Uh, we know that can never be disconnected from your word. And so your word is an everlasting word. It never will change because it doesn't need to change. So we can study it, enjoy it, treasure it, knowing that it will not depart. And Lord, we also know that it does return void. And so as we study these things for our own lives today and to know you better and to live according to your plans, Lord, uh, we ask that it would continue to shape and mold us into the men and women, the young people that you have called us to be. Thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it seems like quite a long time since I've been back in Numbers 22, or Numbers. Um, it's gone for a period of time, and then other things we did on Wednesdays, and uh, but here we find ourselves back in Numbers 22. Yeah, you're probably familiar with Numbers 22. It's about a, a false prophet and a donkey, um, and a talking one at that. Uh, so it's, it's one that is quite fascinating to study, and, uh, and, and at first glance, like some passages, when we look at them, we... We go, um, I, I'm not sure I understand what the problem is here. But the more we study, the more we look at this, and the deeper we dig, and the way we look through the Scriptures, we realize there's great, great problems in this text with a prophet. The chapter begins, um, really kind of marks the beginning of the end of Numbers, in a, in a sense, the book of Numbers. Um, from here, we'll see... Uh, how God will use Balaam, even though he is um, not a good guy. He's going to use him to uh, prophesy uh, about the nation of Israel in the next few chapters after this one. And then he'll turn to laws and regulations, kind of setting the scene there. You'll notice in verse 1 in your Bibles that they are just across from Jericho. They're on the other side of Jordan. Remember, they've just taken out the Amorites. Uh, this is part of a uh, the countryside there that some of two and a half of the tribes are going to move into and then go across the Jordan and help them when they get to the book, we get to the book of Joshua. But these last 13 chapters um, are a collection of a few narratives and laws and regulations. I'm going to try to move through those uh, fairly quickly in the next coming weeks and, and then we'll come to uh, Deuteronomy. What's interesting is the nation, when you understand where they're at right now, they're going to be here until the end of Deuteronomy. Now, for us, that seems a long time because I've got to get through that book, but, but they're right there. They've wandered for 40 years. They're right at the, the gate, in a sense, to the promised land, and yet God has many things he wants to teach them before they go in. Now, this narrative is, is most striking, isn't it, when you study this? It concerns this Balaam, this Gentile prophet, a seer he's referred to. Um, and he's hired by this king, this king of Moab, uh, Balak. And he is, he's a man who is a pagan, and he wants the nation of Israel cursed. And he's trying to do everything he can to frustrate them in their forward movement towards the promised land. And it, it seems that, that God, certainly God is in control. He's, he's, he's leading to this relationship with this Balaam guy. And it's the most remarkable way he, he's going to speak about the nation of Israel. He's, he's in chapter 23 and 24, he's going to talk about God's future plans and divine purposes for him. Um, it, it's quite remarkable, and yet this man is far, far from one you would want to trust. Now, 
context again, Israel has just stomped Zion and uh, Og just before this on their way. Um, and Balak, he has now seen what they did. This is no small nation. And one of the things you're going to hear as we read through this is that Israel is big. And it's scaring the nations around them. And so uh, Balak here has been, his attention has been caught. He is determined to do whatever it takes to stop this nation as he tries to protect his own nation and tries to bring curses on them. But as we study it, um, there's a lot of valuable lessons. And there's always valuable lessons when you study God's word. But um, there's valuable lessons that are always there when you learn that there's someone trying to oppose the providence of God trying to hinder or frustrate the plans of God. You'll always see uh, difficulties arise when people do that. And, And even here, this man wants to destroy. He wants to actually destroy this nation in some way. Now, I think what's so interesting about this attack, the other one, Sion and Og and others, they just came out to war with them, right? This is indirect. This is almost backdoor, right? This is... This is not so much showing war, but trying to attack in a subtle way, in a dangerous attack. Attack that, it's not hard to study this and see that it would probably have its demonic roots in it. Trying to curse someone else. Now, that's an interesting phrase. We'll see this in just a minute as I begin to read this. I want him cursed. And then the prophet's going to say, God's going to say to the prophet, I've blessed him. And we, we know that language comes from, right? Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. God tells Abraham, uh, I will curse those who curse you and I'll bless those who bless you. To me, it's so fascinating. It doesn't take long when God says something that Satan uses that in a different way. And so now it seems to be, and, and as we study this, and I'll get into this just a little bit, when you study this, it seems to be kind of part of what you do in war. You go find some prophet to curse your enemies for you or bless them in one way or another. And so you can see where they've, they've taken that great saying that was given to Abraham that must have made its way through society as the nations were growing. And here now this king is wanting the nation of Israel cursed. Well, the story of Balak and Balaam teaches us that there's just an unseen war against God's people. And it still happens today. There's always somebody working against the purposes of God. And Satan's usually behind those things. The evil one hates the purposes of God. And Satan's always using his cleverness. The Bible speaks of him as crafty and clever. And again, it's not too difficult to see that he is behind these, trying to hinder, trying to frustrate the fulfillment of God's work. Now, when you first read this, when we get into this, you may think that that. In first reading, the cursory reading of this, you go, "Mm, maybe Balaam's okay. God's talking to him. He seems to say, okay, I'll do what God says to do. But I want to run you to the New Testament first. So that'll help us understand. You'll get a good view of who he is. Let's start in 2 Peter chapter 2, and then we'll come down and quickly look at this chapter. 2 Peter chapter 2. Balaam is a wicked, wicked man. And we have to understand that. And the narrative in the Old Testament does not bring out everything. But if we read just a little farther, and by the time we get to chapter 31, you're going to see just how wicked he is. The curse thing didn't work out for him. And so he introduces and attempts to and and seems to have, according to scriptures, great success of intermarrying and bringing the Baal and gods into the nation of Israel. 
And because of that, he's recorded as a very evil person, particularly in several passages in the New Testament. Go to 2 Peter chapter 2 with me. As we get into chapter 2, notice verse 1, it says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there were, as this will be also false prophets, teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. Now this is what he does later. Even denying the master who bought, uh, bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Now, he'll go down and he's working through uh, lots of people that fill into that first statement. And if you drop down to verse 12 with me, we start to pick up him and others like him. Verse 12. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. Suffering wrong at the rages of doing wrong, they count it a pleasure to revile in the daytime. They are stained and blemished, reviling in their deceptions, and they, are, and they, and they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having hearts trained in greed and accusing children. Here we go. Forsaking, verse 15, the right way, for they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who love the wages of unrighteousness. So as we get into this, you're going to start to, at first, when you first read this, you kind of think, well, is Balaam a good guy? The New Testament shows he is. One more passage, Jude chapter um, one, there's only one chapter in Jude, verses 10 and 11. Again, these late letters um, were warning of a growing apostasy within the church and false teachers that were constantly barbarizing the church. And, and this is one as well. Jude writes to this. Verse 10, he says, But these men reviling the things which they do not understand and the things which... They know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them. Now listen to what he says here. For they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam, and have perished in the rebellion of Korah. Now there's three three groups of people you do not want to be associated with. Cain, (laughs) Balaam, and Korah. Cain murders his own brother. Korah uh, rejects the plan of God, rejects the leadership that God has put in there, desired that position, and he's swallowed up with his family. And then Balaam, this is interesting, and for what pay they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam. So right there you begin to understand one of the issues that we'll see is Balaam had a great desire for wealth and and greed. Though the Old Testament narrative doesn't fully bring that out, the New Testament narrative does. We begin to understand that this man was wicked and he was a threat against God's people. Now turn back with me to uh, Numbers chapter 22 and we'll jump into this passage. My first point goes along that line. Curses for cash and a Gentile prophet. Curses for cash and a Gentile prophet. Follow along as we read the first 14 verses, and then we'll get some thoughts here and see if we can grasp this. 
Then the sons of Israel journeyed and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan opposite of Jericho. Now Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done unto the Amorites. So, so Moab was in great fear because of the people, for they were numerous, and Moab was in dread of the sons of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, Now this horde would, will lick up all, around, all that is around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. And Balak, the son of Zipporah, was king of Moab at that time. So he sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, of Pethor, which is, in the, uh, is, is near the river, in the land of the sons of his people, to call him, saying, Behold, a people came out of Egypt. Behold, they covered the surface of the land, and they are living opposite of me. Now therefore... Please come curse this people for me since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I may be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed and he whom you curse is cursed. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with fees for divination in their hands. And they came to Balaam and repeated Balak's words to him. And he said to them, spend the night here. I will bring word back to you as the Lord may speak to me. And the leaders of Moab stayed with Balaam. Then God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? And Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent word to me. Behold, there is a people who came out of Egypt and covered the surface of the land. Now come, curse them for me. Perhaps may I be able to fight against them and drive them out. God said to Balaam, Do not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So Balaam arose in the morning and said to Balak's leaders, Go back to your land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. The leaders of Moab arose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refused to come with us. So there's the first opening in kind of setting the scene that's happened. You realize the the great vast numbers of Israelites. And isn't that interesting? They just came out of 40 years in the desert. Uh, God has provided for them. The shoes didn't wear out. He kept feeding them manna. Um, He has clearly taken out enemies. All the older generation above 20 has died. And yet the Bible says they're so numerous, it's scaring solid nations. So God has been very kind and gracious to this nation once again. We also start to understand that uh, he does not want to fight. He wants to use other alternatives to try to win a war. And one of those is cursing. Now, in the ancient world, I read a a little bit of this, um, they picked up on this idea of cursing, and and it was quite popular. And the text seems to uh, kind of point out that Balaam had gained some kind of reputation for this. You can kind of see that in the text. He seems to have a reputation. This king says, well, go to Balaam. He curses people. He blesses people. Let's, let's get him to help us. So that was his job, to curse nations and bless nations. It's interesting, isn't it? Going ready to go to war, or at least you think you are, and so you go find some prophet, some spiritual man, and ask for a cursing. This has kind of been picked up in some of the movies. I don't know if you've watched Lord of the Rings and some of Tolkien's stuff and things like that. You see that in there. They, they did that. And this was quite, quite um, uh, popular within the ancient world. But there seems to be a great difference in this request of how Balaam receives it. Notice in verse 8, eight here. Notice it, it indicates that Balaam is 
is cautious. And he seems to be somewhat under constraint here. Because he asked the elders to wait, wait overnight here, and let me go receive from the Lord. Now that's interesting. He doesn't seem to know, um, he doesn't seem to have an understanding of this nation of Israel. But he knows something about Yahweh, something about Jehovah. He uses the word Jehovah here, which we would say Yahweh. He, he uses that name. So he has some understanding of who he is. It's interesting, he uses the word there, Jehovah, but in verse 9 and 10, when Moses returns back there, he uses the word Elohim here. But in verse 12, Balaam seems to be ignorant to this special relationship that this Jehovah God has with the nation of Israel. He doesn't see clearly that God has blessed him. And so he says, well, I'll go ask this Yahweh. I'll ask this Lord of this nation, and I'll ask them if he'll curse them. Now, what is obvious is that the Lord made himself known definitely to Balaam. And Balaam was clearly conscious of God's divine overruling of what he really wanted to do and what this king wanted to do. He seems to understand God has this whole matter under his control. Now, again, the divine instruction given to Balaam is unmistakable, right? You can't miss it. He is told and he is forbidden to go with these, these elders from Moab. In fact, he's forbidden to curse them. He does not say that. He says, I'm forbidden to go with you. But God says, you're not going to curse them for they're blessed and you're not going to go with them. Now, notice in verse 13 that Balaam makes that clear to them. Verse 13 um, he says, so Balaam arose in the morning and said to Balak's leaders, go back to your land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. And that's not quite what the Lord said. He said, you're not going to curse them, you're going to bless them. So we begin to see some character issues already. And if Balaam would have, think about it, if he had obeyed the Lord and he refused to entertain any idea Anything other than this strict word of God, what God said, there would have been no problem. If he would have just said, this is what the God of Israel has said, and he would have obeyed that, there would have been no problems. I think that's pretty fascinating. (laughs) I think a lot of our problems come in our life because we know what God says, and then we don't do it. And we see that here. But as we see here, Balak refuses Balaam's rejection, right? We we see he, he hears word of this. He does not care about this. You'll see as we go on here, he wants Balaam to reject any, uh, God's word, and he keeps enticing him. Balak is enticing Balaam to disobey God. It's interesting, some of the commentaries alluded to the idea that, of Balaam's greed. Um, I, I think we see that in the New Testament. I think it's here, but it's, it's not explicit in the text. But it's on the New Testament where you feel like he wants the payment for it. He desired that. And, and, and as we go on and read, you'll see that Balak picks up on it. He goes, do you, do you not think I have enough? I, I don't think I can. He, he knows that this is the game, right? I come, I ask you to do something, you say no, I offer more. You know, we still do that when we buy and sell cars, don't we, or something. And that's what this is at. But this is about cursing a nation. So the Old Testament doesn't say everything exactly, but the New Testament shows us Balaam's heart. Now, point two, a prophet's heart of greed is exposed. And here's where we begin to see some of these things. Follow along with me, 15 through 21. Then Balak again sent uh, leaders, and this time more numerous and more distinguished than the former. They came to Balaam and they said to him, Thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, 
Let nothing, I beg you, hinder you from coming to me. For I will indeed honor you richly, and I will do whatever you say to me. Please come then and curse this people for me. And Balaam replied to the servant of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could, do, I could not do anything, either small or great, contrary to the command of the Lord my God. Well, that, now that sounds okay, right? Look at verse 19. Now, please, you also stay the night here. Uh-oh. And I will find out what else the Lord will speak to me. The Lord came to Balaam at night and said to him, If these men have come to call you, rise up and go with them. But only the word which I speak to you, you shall do. So Balaam arose in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the leaders of Moab. Well, it's at this point in the narrative that things get a little more complicated as you start to read this and study this. Clearly, Balak is not taking no for an answer, right? He's, he's not willing to accept Balaam's decision here. So he sends this new delegate. These are more numerous. They're more powerful. They're uh, prominent leaders now to show this uh, state of authority and power and, and how important this is. He wants this prophet to come and curse this nation of Israel. But you notice in verse 18, Balaam's response was exactly like his prior response in verse 13. In fact, when you read this, you would say that's very similar to other prophets of Israel and what they said. So he seems to be in line with the things of God, and he seems to be in line with the prophets of old, um, uh, or at least the ones who would be coming. But in verse 19, this is where we start to see the exposure of a sinful heart of Balaam. This is where he asks the delegates of Balak to stay the night in order to see if there's something else. Maybe the Lord will, will change his mind. Maybe the Lord will do something. And the question you have to ask here when you look at this, what more could God have said in verse 12 than what he said? He, he told them. God said to me, do not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. And as we'll see next week as we get into this, and in, in, into the, where, he, where he takes them to, I think, Three, or three, three different spots to try to curse the nation so he can see them, see view of them. Uh, we'll see that he keeps trying to do everything against what God told him, and God won't let him. And so we begin to see the heart that happen, happens here, and you begin to get suspicious when you study this about Balaam because he seems to be hoping that the situation is going to change. He's not happy with what God has told him. Now, questions of his moral, moral character begin to rise here. Now, I think it's fair to ask interpretive questions here. And one of them I would say, I asked was, why is the divine instruction to this Gentile prophet changing and he has given permission to go back with these delegates of Balak's? And I believe the narrative is meant to kind of surprise you a little bit when you study this. I try to draw you in to what God's doing here, to this maybe apparent change of mind that God is having. And, and, and as I studied this, I, I thought, Lord, this causes me to wonder if you're going to allow, in first reading, first cursory reading, are you going to allow this Gentile seer, this Gentile prophet to curse your people? Are you going to actually allow to do this? 
And I, and, I, and I love the way the scriptures draw you into that, right? But the instructions are clear. The Bible says he's now allowed to go with them, but only permitted to say what God tells him. Now, certainly the, the coming scene will answer many of those uh, things and bring clarity to it. But I also don't want to forget that God's, at, at this point too, is exposing the wickedness of Balak. He is using this whole scene to show how wicked this nation is before he does destroy them. He's showing who they are. And what we know so far about Balak is he has no concern for the God, the living God of Israel. He does not care about that. He, in fact, we'll see him in the coming chapters using Baal and other gods trying to overcome this nation. But I think what's key here as far as Balaam is concerned it seems obvious that God is revealing the prophet's heart here. He's revealing his heart. And he, and, and he seems, God seems to be showing these mixed motives of his heart. He knows God has spoken to him. He knows what God has said. And yet, he still desires something that God has said no to. And I think he's greatly affected by his desire for gain. One commentary gave a great cross-reference to this. And it was actually a cross-reference about the nation of Israel. Um, and, and it shows us that a lot of times we are not content with what God's given us. The nation of Israel was not content with manna. In fact, they complained so vehemently uh, that they wanted meat that God flew in the quail. Remember, we studied about this. In fact, when the meat was in their teeth, still in their mouth, he brought a wasting disease on them. And, and the psalmist records this in Psalms 106, one of the great history lessons of the nation of Israel, verse 15. So he gave them their request, but he sent a wasting disease among them. And so I think that's a, little, a lot of it what's going on here. He gives the request to show how wicked they are. I'm going to show you what, what this leads you to. My word is not good enough for you, and I'm going to show you where this goes. And I think all this confirms the statement in verse 22 that God's not happy. Point number three here. A death angel, a donkey, and a greedy prophet. Follow along as we read 22 through 35 here. But God was angry because he was going. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. Now he was riding on his donkey, and two servants were with him. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with a drawn sword in his hand, the donkey turned off from the way and went into the field. But Balaam struck the donkey to turn her back into the way. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path of the vineyards, with a wall on this side and a wall on that side. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pressed herself to the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. And the angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn to the right or to the left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she laid down under Balaam. So Balaam was angry and struck the donkey with his stick. And the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey. And she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? Then Balaam said to the donkey, This is quite interesting. Now he's talking to the donkey. Because you have made a mockery of me. If there had been a sword in my hand, I would have killed you by now. And the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life to this day? 
I ever been accustomed to do so to you? And he said, no. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with a drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed all the way to the ground. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I come out as an adversary because your way was contrary to me. But the donkey saw me and turned aside from me these three times. And if she had not turned aside from me, I would surely have killed you just now and let her live. Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that you were standing in the way against me. Now then, it is displeasing to you. I will turn back. But the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with these men, but you shall speak only the word which I tell you. So Balaam went along with the leaders of Balak. And our interpretation of the previous passages, as we're kind of working our way through here, um, it's correct to understand with the help of the New Testament that Balaam had a wicked desire. He wanted payment. We understand that. And then it comes to this confrontation, and, it, and it's inevitable, right? Uh, he's really not after the things of God. He's playing along the game in order to get what he wants. And this Old Testament narrative is powerfully unre- revealing just the deceitfulness of his heart with a donkey here. And, and, I, and I love to think application-wise when I, when I thought about this. We, we often say, oh, God, I want to pursue your will. I, I, want, I want to be in your will, God. But in the end, what God does with us sometimes, because we're not always after his will when we say we are, he exposes that. And we, we respond either with anger and frustration or we, or we repent. And, and, and you see this as, as this goes on. He, he has a desire. He wants to do something, and yet God has exposed the sinful response of how he treated his donkey, how his anger came out of that to a closed door, to a closed path. How do we respond when God closes a door? I think one of the things we do is we push on him, don't we? I've often given counsel to so many people because I've had to learn this myself. Uh, and they're saying, Lord, I, Pastor, will you help me? I'm trying to figure out God's will in this life. And, and we talk through things. I said, look, don't push on the door. If the door is closed, don't push on it. That means he's redirecting you. And, and how we know we're pushing on the door is our response to a closed door. How do you respond when God says no? or not right now, or I have a different plan. How do you respond to that? How does anger come out of you? Does frustration come out of you? What comes out of you when God says, I have something better? I have something different. I, I think there's great application here as we look at it. But notice in verse 22, God's angry with him. God's angry, and see, this helps us understand that all that he's doing, God sees in his heart. It isn't because you go, well, wait a minute, you told him to go, and now you're angry. See, we start to understand that God is angry with him because he lets him do what he wants to do, but it's against his, it's against God's command. It's against his will. Now, God's anger was also good, a good thing for restraining, right? His anger is to help restrain, restrain Balaam from advancing down a path that God did not want him to go. And God will often do that. He will show us that he is not wanting us to go down that path. He will sometimes even discipline us. 
But we also see God's anger in response to those who oppose his people. God's not happy that Balak is trying to get his people whom he has rescued out of slavery and brought them out of the land of Egypt and bringing them to the promised land. He is not happy with Balak opposing his people. And we see that as as well part of this. And what I think is both impressive and frightening as I look at this is that Balak's donkey could see an angel in the presence of danger, which is which certainly was supernatural, right? Supernatural, an angel was sent, a donkey can see this. And, and yet, this man, this seer, this prophet that was able to speak with God is entirely blind to what God's doing. And I think that's what sin does to us. Unrepentive sin blinds us to understanding the will of God. And, and then our wills become so much stronger than what God's will is. Now, you can't help but feel sorry for this donkey. <laughs> you read the story, and I can hear you going, oh, <laughs> you beat him again. But, and think about this poor donkey. She's, she's in a really difficult space. I mean, the, talk about a, between a rock and a hard spot. She has the presence of an angel with a drawn sword here in verse 23, blocking her path that her master is so intent on going down. But then on the other hand, she's being beat and harassed by her master because he wants to go that way. And so this female donkey, notice the female donkey, her, he has, there are personal pronouns here, isn't that nice? Um, female donkeys, he's, she's caught between two dangerous things, a death angel and the wrath of her master. Now, I don't want to call anybody a donkey in here. And you always heard, you know, if God can speak through a donkey, he can speak through you. You've heard all those. But I think she's interesting. In Dallas, there are those who find themselves in this position, right, in life, right? And, and I've counseled with enough people through my ministry that they find themselves in difficult spots. They may have an unsafe spouse, who is desiring them to do something against the will of God. And yet they know the Bible, and, and they don't want to compromise, and they find themselves in these difficult places. And this donkey knew what to do. This donkey knew to turn from that and, and, and even stay in, or and even lie down in, in a difficult situation. And there's times when, when other people are put in they're pressuring you. They're coming at you with sinful things, putting you in difficult situations. And you go, I can't compromise on the word, but I can't handle this attack either. I really like this donkey. She took the licking. And she chose what was due to her right. She chose to honor God in a sense. I mean, now again, this is a supernatural situation here. But I think there's a lesson. I'm neither now going to run away, nor am I going to run into danger. I'm going to lie down here. I'm going to take what I have to take in order to make sure that the ones around me don't die. And I think it's fascinating when you think about her. We have one commentary I read on numbers. He's quite interesting read, a Hebrew scholar. He said the donkey acts, the donkey's acts and words anticipate the problems Balaam is about to face. The donkey was caught three times between an angel's sword and Balaam's stick. Soon Balaam will find himself 
three times between Balak's demands and God's prohibitions. It's, it's, he's, God's going to reverse the order on him now. You did this to the donkey, now I'm going to do this to you. And you're going to be put between my commands not to curse my people. And Balak's going to take you from point to point to point and make you try to curse me. What are you going to do with me? And so there's so much to learn of that. And of course, Balaam knows enough that God has spoken. And we'll see in next week that he doesn't curse the nations. He does some awful things later. And we'll see he dies because of those things. Um, but he doesn't do that. Now, let's take a moment here to talk about a phenomenon of a, do- a talking animal. Um, I think this is, <laughs> I just want to make sure I hit this. <laughs> um, your dog isn't going to tell you stuff like this. There are people who believe that. And uh, even th- this and several other passages and things that made the Jews believe, and again, we don't know if this is true or not, believe, but they hold to this that animals talked before um, the fall. Now, of course, they tie that to the serpent that's speaking and so forth, but we know that Satan entered that. Uh, that serpent, and so they believe that. And then, and then you watch great movies like the Narnia series, and C.S. Lewis does such a great job in animating these animals, and and so forth like that. But then our world, our society, takes animals to a whole nother level, right? You know, we we grew up with Snoopy and the Peanuts and Mr. Schultz, right? Snoopy didn't talk. Now he flew planes and, you know, Red Barons and, and you know, uh, did all kinds of fun things like that. But he didn't talk, did he? Now animals talk, and, and it's an amazing. And, I, oh, it, and you know, of course, I'm a little weird because I'm a pastor rancher, you know. So, <laughs> you know, I always remember going, Hun, I, we got to be careful with some of these videos we're showing the kids because that's not what God intended animals to do. And, and yet, I think it's just this whole push towards the worship of what God created versus the worship of the creator. And so there's this poor understanding of this. And, and it's so fun to kind of read on this. And I actually made the mistake of getting on the internet and kind of seeing what some of the crazy people um, think about this. And you cannot believe how much they, they now think that God can talk through their cats or their dogs. Be careful with that. God gave animals to us as a great blessing. They help you accomplish things he's asked you to do in this world. That was mainly what they've been used for. And we know that your dog and your cat are great, and and they they bring you comfort, and you enjoy them, right? That's just the kindness of God. But but they're not to be worshipped. They're they're soulless creatures, right? I remember I said that one time years ago, and I got a lady so mad at me, she left the church because she thought her cat had a soul, and I... They're not made in the image of God. They're not made like us. But they are a great gift from God, and we should cherish them. Now, donkeys, when we look at this, because I like focusing on this a little bit, donkeys, I don't think, had maybe the association today that we have with them. Um, Horses are so prevalent, but they weren't back then. Horses in this ancient world would have been scarce. They would have been uh, very expensive. They would have been used for royalty and for wars and pulling chariots and fighting. They, uh, the average person didn't have a horse. And you can see that as you study the scriptures. You don't see often the horse there. But a donkey, it was more like um, the economy car of today, right? Doesn't look like much, but it'll get you from there, there to back, right? And, and it was a beast of burden and, and, and often very faithful. And that's what we see come out of her through this, <laughs> through this supernatural uh, uh, time of her talking, have, have, have I not been great? Have I not done everything you've asked me to do? 
He says, no. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you, you have. You've done everything. I've, I, and now he's having this conversation. But, but here I think there's just some divine humor that kind of goes on as his donkey's demonstrating to Balaam that, look, I've served you. And you're the one who's acting like a fool. I'm the one who saved your life. And the angel verifies that. If your donkey does not lay down, I kill you. And, and, and that's the foolishness of sin. Sin will make you be a fool. The psalmist says it this way, Psalm 69, 5, Oh God, it is you who knows my foolishness. And my wrongs are not hidden from you. And certainly this is what was happening in Balaam. He was a fool. He was driving for sordid gain, and God knew it. And yet God still had a job for him to do. He has to go and prophesy in chapter 23 and 24 and protect God's people and show that they're never going to be cursed by him and so forth. He's going to show that through this next couple of texts. And so even he takes this fool and he brings them through this in order to get them to that point. Now, when you read this, you kind of snicker at the Lord's determination to use a donkey here. I, I kind of snicker at it at least. And you snicker at the wisdom of a donkey and the foolishness of this man here. Um, but I think what we do is we, don't, we, we, we may underestimate the blindness of sin. And the more I thought about that, I thought, wow, he was so blind, so desirous to go with these people. He knew that God, if God lets him go, that he may get what he's after. And so greed and anger and jealousy, you kind of see all of those things come out with Balaam. They blind you. And if you're struggling with those things, if you're struggling with greed and anger and jealousy, they'll, they'll blind you to the will of God. And I think this is a frightening reminder of what sin can do. And this is why Balaam is presented as the man he is presented in the New Testament. How it can blind and render you uh, insensitive, even to an animal insensitive to that now god is full of grace isn't he and as much as we see the wickedness of balaam and blindness of sin you see the grace of god here look at verse 32 with me the angel of the lord said to him why have you struck your donkey these three these three times behold i have come out as an adversary because your way was contrary to me so right there you know what he's doing is wrong this is why God's angry at him. The angel of the Lord is saying this. You, you've done what is wrong. But there's grace here, right? He isn't struck dead. And, and grace comes in the most magnificent way, really, through a donkey. Grace of God has brought in a strange and unusual situation. But notice in verse 3. But the donkey saw me and turned aside from these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, I would have surely have killed you just now and let her live and this points to the fact that that donkey's reaction kept him from death and that's god's grace wasn't it balaam's blind to what's going on sin blinds but god uses amazing things to open our eyes often and will we listen to them and i love god's grace it's often very humbling when god does does things like this god will humble you and he'll use unique circumstances to humble you so that you can understand what he's doing. He'll help humble you to bring off the blinders of desires and greed and things that we want. He'll bring those off so that you understand his will and you'll find joy in the will of God versus your own will. And you think about this prominent Gentile prophet known for his cursings and blessings. He is prideful man. 
He's heard from God, right? He has a divine revelation from God. He's, he's something else. He has two writers with him. You can see in the text, he's ticked off because he's made, you've, this donkey's made a fool of me. And if I had had a sword, I would have killed you. Why? Because he has two other cowboys or donkeyers with him. You made me a fool in front of these guys. I'm the guy getting divine revelation. I'm the guy that can curse and bless. Man, you can just see pride in this man. And yet there's the grace of God not giving him what he surely deserved. He surely deserved death. And that's after striking this innocent donkey three times. And I think it's important we understand that this supernatural event is not just a common occurrence, right? We don't think your dog's going to go home and talk to you. But God is gracious, and he uses all these circumstances to accomplish what he wants, and he uses an animal here to, to bring about this special message that what God's doing here. This is his love and his kindness that he shows, and so we've got to keep animals in the right place, but it is fascinating how God does use them from time to time. God speaks through a donkey. I, I can't help remark that, that he talks back to the donkey. And there doesn't seem to be any hesitation. And you kind of think, where is this guy? That you're so much, you're talking to your donkey without hesitation. But again, I think this is where blinders come. Look at verse 35. But the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with the men. Here comes the next test. But you shall speak only the word which I tell you. So Balaam went along with them. And it's a reminder that evil men are, are warned by God through his word. And, I, and I, I, I equate this even to today. God's word still, still should be spoken in evil societies. Balak was an evil man. And though we have a disobedient Balaam and he's after sordid gain and so forth, God wants his word given to evil societies to understand what God is doing and what he's not doing. Now, we have to be careful. You're not Balaam, and, and um, you need to be careful of the political world. But, but there is truth. We do stand up for the Bible. We need to know our Bible. And when someone uh, comes at us in a political way, our first response should not always be political, but it should be biblical. Why do we vote the way we vote? Why is life important? Is that because that's the Republican stand, or is that because that's God's stand? Think through those things. And so we, we talk about life. We talk about that God gives life. He knows life before there was any days. He numbers our days. Life is important to him. And so we should be known for our view of God, not for our political views. And I think you can see that in the text here as well. Fourth thought, last one. A prophet and a king kicking against the will of God. Follow me down through 36 and 41. New 41. Then Balak heard that Balaam was coming, and he went out to meet him at the city of Moab, which is on the Aaron border at the extreme end of the border. There's a reason why he's doing that. Then Balak said to Balaam, Did I not urgently send to you to call you? And why did you not come to me? Am I really unable to honor you? That's what he thinks, because he knows Balaam, right? So Balaam says to Balak, Behold, I am come to you now. There seems to be a resistance there, isn't there? I'm not happy about how this is going down, but I'm here. And I'm able to speak, am I, and it goes in his question form, am I able to speak anything at all? I, I don't get to do what I want. I'm not getting to do what I want to say, but the word of God is put in my mouth, and that's what I'm going to speak. You can see his resistance to this. And Balaam went to Balak 
And they came to Kiriath-Huzoth. And Balak sacrificed oxen and sheep, and he sent, from ba- sent to Balaam and the leaders who were with him. And then it came about in the morning that Balak took Balaam and brought him up to the high places of Baal. This is where they would do sacrifices. Now Baal's involved. Now you can see who this nation is about. This is a worship of a dead god that they sacrifice babies to. This is paganism at its highest. And they'll go this last phrase. And he saw from there a portion of the people. Two things about that. One, he's trying to say, this is what I'm up against. And from this view, you can only see a portion of what I'm up against. This tells you how big the nation of Israel is now. How God has blessed that nation. But he's also showing him this. But these last few verses in this chapter um, recount this meeting, right? Balaam's now with Balak, the one who's been wanting to come. And Balaam's upset. upset. You can see this. He's mad. Why did you delay? Don't you understand? I got this problem here. Uh, I requested you to come, and you didn't come. And so I'm mad because you don't see the urgency of me. You can see just the pride and arrogance of the king. You can see the pride and arrogance of Balaam. These two guys are not good for each other. And yet they seem to be working in cahoots. Balak is offended, right? Verses 37 and 38, you can see that. You you want more money out of you? This seems to be the way he does things. It seems Balaam has been known for these curses, right? We've done this before. Why aren't you here? Why aren't you coming? Why aren't you doing this the way I want you to do it? But notice Balaam's response in verse 38. There is no communication about what happened to the donkey or the angel. I mean, he didn't say anything about that. I think that might have been profitable. Well, let me tell you what happened on the way. Is he still trying to manipulate in some way? Why in the world would you not tell him what was going on? That might change his view of what he's about ready to do. Oh, yeah. The God of Israel, he's in his angel. And this is what happened. He tells him nothing about that. There seems to be this hint of, resistance with him even now after seeing this uh, maybe he's scared for his life he's he still has this desire for sword of gain but he knows this angel had a sword and so forth but he's not telling ba- Balak about what happened and if Balak knew the truth maybe he would change his mind and all this gives indication that Balaam was not on board with the divine will of God he's doing it because he was told to do it hmm That's one of the problems in Christianity often. We find ourselves doing something because that's what we're supposed to do. And this this shows that this man is not walking with God. He is not a man of God. If there's any question, I want you just to go forward. We're going to see this in coming weeks. But go to chapter 31 because some people may kind of be looking at this and feel like they have a different interpretation of it and wonder how I'm coming to this. When you get to chapter 31, you begin to uh, realize that this narrative reaccounts the slaughter of Midian. And God takes full vengeance through the sons of Israel against the Midianites and the Moabites. And they come out, and you can kind of see a thousand great warriors from each tribe, verse 4, come out. And they're furnished, and these the and they bring up the furnishing of the temple, and and God takes them in there, and they're led by Eleazar the priest, and and they come, and 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 they go into this battle against Midian, and God commands it, and they kill every male in verse seven and verse eight. They kill the kings of Midian; their names are listed there, and then it says, and they also killed Balaam the son of Beor with a sword. 
God has them killed there. And if you drop down to verse 14 and following, you realize a little more. Moses was angry with the officers of the army. You'll, you'll, we'll get to this, but they didn't, they didn't kill everybody. They kept the women and, and things, problems that Moses said, why have you spared all these women? Now, now this is the reason why. This, this starts to help you understand how bad Balaam was. Behold, they caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the manner of pure so that the plague was among the congregation of the Lord. Balaam taught them the ways of Baal. He taught them to burn their babies in these altars. He taught them these things. This was a wicked man. He's a wicked man from the beginning. And so when we look at this, we begin to understand. I, I want to just tell you one more reference of where we see Balaam. In the church of Pergamum, when we get to the seven churches in Revelation, um, he begins to talk to them. He says, but I have a few things against you because, you because there are some of you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. See, it lets you into a little more of Balaam's life, what he was doing. And so he's killed in this passage. He was a wicked, wicked prophet. And he's after sordid gain. And in all this is God showing grace to him through a donkey um, and, and preventing him to be killed at that point. It's very frightening, very sobering when you think about going against the will of God. And this man had direct revelation. And yet he finds himself in opposition against the living God. One last thought in closing, and I don't want to go too far with this, but I really fell in love with this donkey today. <laughs> He's protecting Balaam. She knew what to do. She knew that if she doesn't lay her life down, he dies. Again, I don't want to read into the text, but I think there's application here. Isaiah 53, 4 says, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him, what? Stricken. Why have you hit me these three times, donkey says. See, our Lord was stricken for us. There is a death angel for all those whose sins are not forgiven. There is a death. <laughs> and, and it strikes me that the Lord rides in on a donkey, has filled, fulfilled in prophecies of the prophets. And, and yet you can see a little bit of Christocentric thinking here. This, this one, this one who carries the burdens, right? It's called a beast of burden. Our Lord carried our burdens. <laughs> He's the one who stands in the gap so that we are not stricken by God. Hey, he took that strike for us. And I think it's a humbling truth when you think about Christ, how he lays down his life so that I will not be destroyed. I think in this message, and, and again, I, I, I'm not trying to read too much in it, but I thought about that. I thought, Lord, you were struck for us. And on the other side of that cross, if that cross is not 
stop that, knee bend and forgiveness granted there and receive there. What's beyond that cross is destruction and death and judgment. And this donkey saved a person who didn't deserve its life. And that's what Jesus does for us, right? None of us deserve it. None of us are... are, um, living our lives perfect according to the law. We've never sinned. We all are deserving of death. The wages of sin is death. And yet Jesus came, took the, took the strike for us and so that we would not be destroyed. Father, thank you for this lesson. It's not over. We're going to continue to see what he does in the next few chapters next week. But, Lord, we thank you that there's that these Old Testament narratives really help us understand our own heart at times. God, your will for us is clear. We're to love you with all our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. And we're to love our neighbors as ourselves. Husbands are to love their wives, and wives are to submit to their husbands, and children are to obey their parents. And all these great commands are given to us for life that is pleasant and, and a life that is uh, purposeful for your glory. And yet many things we know, we've heard those commands, we've heard those truths, and yet we think there's some other way to go about it. We often find ourselves driven by our greed and our anger and our jealousy, and we find ourselves in lots of problems. So, Lord, I pray that even a lesson like this, way buried back in the Pentateuch and the book of Numbers, there's a lesson there for for those who have heard divine revelation, we've heard it. We've heard it tonight. We've heard God's word. We all own Bibles. But yet ignore it and try to figure out some way, Lord, how to get what we want different than what you've told us to do, different than your timing for us. There's always difficulties that come with that, Lord. So I pray you would help us. If there's areas in our life that we're pushing on doors we should not push on, trying to push our way through something you have said no to, we would recognize that. We would repent of those things, Lord. And we would allow you to direct our paths because you love us and you direct us to the things you want us to do and be. And So help us in that area, Lord. There's a lot of frustration when we fight against the, the King of Glory. Apostle Paul found that. He was told he was kicking against the goats. It was useless for what to do what he was doing, yet he thought he was religious and was doing what was right, and he found himself on the ground and blind. Lord, we don't want to be that way. We want to obey you. Help us to know your truths, and from a great heart of joy and a great heart of contentment in you and your finished work to obey you in these areas. Lord, thank you for these lessons. May we apply them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.